As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continued to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year, and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavours of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. Welcome to the SUPFM podcast with me, Simon Hutchinson. Every week, I chat with interesting people from the SUP world or to people who can help us, the paddlers of the SUP tribe, to improve and to maximise our own experiences and our love of both the sport and the water. Every episode is designed to inspire or to help you get a deeper immersion into the sport through my conversations with leading athletes, scientists, explorers, TED speakers and New York Times best-selling authors. And not forgetting some of the many insanely inspiring distance paddlers we've routinely had on the show. This week, I got to chat with Craig and James, who are the founders of the River Guide and instruction business, Sup Shropshire, and who talked to me about their experiences paddling the longest river in the UK, the River Severn. And although they're extremely experienced at operating in river environments, this was their first experience of going on this type of end-to-end journey. So there's a really unique combination in this episode of them sharing their experiences of paddling some decent distances alongside some of the lessons and the thought processes they used along the way, which may be useful for you if you're thinking about going on your own trip of whatever length in the future. Apart from running SUP Shropshire, Craig and James's day jobs, as we'll discover, is in the fire and rescue service. And in the UK, that's the lead rescue agency for inland water incidents. So as they take us through their journey, They also give us some useful insights into doing these types of trips in as safe way as possible. And they will both be popping up in a future episode later this season too. And just to say that the purpose of their trip was to raise money for two organisations, Seafull, which is a charity that Craig explains in the episode, and SARA, which stands for Seven Area Rescue Association which is second in size to the RNLI and the biggest independent lifeboat service with 22 inshore lifeboats and approximately 200 personnel, which James volunteers for. So there's loads to listen out for in this episode with Craig and James from SUP Shropshire. Hi guys, welcome to SUP FM. Hello. Oh, thank you for having us. Well, th- thanks for joining us and um, and particular kudos to you guys for joining us so close to the end of your recent expedition. So as we speak, you have just completed an epic four-day expedition down the longest river in Britain, which uh, is the River Severn. 
And I must have known this at some point, but like a lot of people, I just assumed it was the Thames. But so you did that in four days and it seems like it was uh, it was quite a journey. Yeah, it was uh, an epic journey. To do it over four days was was challenging for us. We, there were 11, 12 hour days and uh, yeah, we really had to dig in deep and, and get through it. But we, we got through it together and it, it just feels great now that we, we've achieved it. We, 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 we talked about it a while ago and it's come to fruition and now we're at the other side and looking back on it, a bit of a dream. But what I'd like to say is that we're massive fans of you, Simon, and, and SUP FM and I've been listening to your podcast for some time now and, and Joe Mosley's as well. And, and what I find especially, and I'm sure all the listeners would agree, is that when we can't get on the water for whatever reason, listening to the podcast just makes us feel that we're back on the water and so uh, it's like we're there we're there on our boards you know we're there with with the guests that you have on and it, it just really gets us through those what i say dark times sometimes so well, thank you oh you're, you're welcome and um and obviously d- we both do it uh, both joe and myself uh, do it out of love for the sport but it's a very pleasurable job and um, speaking to people who are also fellow uh, lovers of the sport so it doesn't feel like a chore at all and we always have interesting chats so as part of my research for this episode um, I found out that the Severn has the second highest river flow of all the rivers in the UK and um, and I guess that would uh, would very much suit you and something that you'd be very attuned to as someone who who teaches and instructs on the river. So just in terms of the physical effects of this, really appreciate you joining us because uh, you must be absolutely shattered because, as you say, you, you did it in in four days. And I would certainly, if I was doing it, do it at a more leisurely pace. Yeah, we're absolutely exhausted. I know you mentioned the flow there and, and a lot of people might think, oh, they got pushed along all the way. It's, it's easy, but... Uh... Up in Shropshire, we're fortunate that we see the faster part of it, so we get some exciting bits, and I, I do a bit of white water paddle boarding myself uh, on the River Seven. And at, at the top part, you get pushed through a little bit, but then you'll hit the weir in Shrewsbury, slows you right down, and you're earning every stroke. And on that journey, when we came through Shrewsbury, we had a, a strong headwind as well. And then when you get down sort of past beauty way it really slows down then so you the flow disappears and and you're earning every stroke at the other end where the tide comes in and you've got uh, one of the biggest tidal ranges um mm. in the world so it's um yeah it's uh it's a good it's a fun it's a fun river that's what i'd say it's a fun Absolutely. river and we haven't even mentioned the seven bore out the other end either. So uh, maybe that's for another one. That's certainly on my bucket list. But before we talk about the journey in more detail and then hopefully sketch out some of those moves, which will help other people plan their expeditions, let's just get a bit of background from you both, because you're both uniquely qualified, both in your professional and out of work roles to help others with your combined water experience. So you're both you're both fire officers, you work for the fire service currently serving and you've got water interest in your professional lives as well. Um, James, just tell us a little bit about your role and how your SUP world and your professional role interact. So within the fire service, I'm in a non-operational role, but I look after road and water safety throughout the the county. But in my free time, or whatever free time there is, I'm a volunteer crew member with Seven Area Rescue Association. 
So they are the largest independent multidisciplinary rescue organization in the country. They cover the River Severn. So the area that we started our paddle in, uh, so Crew Green uh, near Melville, uh, the crews actually went there in the, the, the flooding uh, in February. Uh, so we were tasked to assist Shropshire Fire and Rescue. So that was a mixture of both work and volunteer role. So we got sent up there to evacuate some residents from flooding. So that became quite a nice start point for us on the river. And then Seven Area Rescue Association cover all the way down to the the Seven Crossings. So that gave us that, that nice sort of distance and tied together. So as we started to kind of come up with this plan, it all kind of started to slot together quite nicely. But yeah, it certainly fitted in with what I do as a day job. I've spent a lot of my time in and around the water or underneath it for several years as well. Tell us more about that. Tell us about your, your general water background. Uh, so I spent a lot of time in around water, kind of school age, sailing, kayaking, canoeing, uh, but also scuba diving as well. Uh, I was fortunate enough to spend a couple of years working in the dive industry. So I did a couple of years working up in the Orkney Islands. So we were diving Scapa Flow, did a summer in Cyprus as well, diving out in the Med. Uh, so yeah, I spent a lot of time working in that water environment. So you're kind of able to call on that experience. Uh, I was a ski instructor as well. Uh, and about 10 years ago, we settled back in the UK and I saw that uh, Sarah were recruiting for crew members, went along one evening and the rest, as they say, is history. I'm kind of now been there for six, seven years. I'm one of the helms, uh, one of the swift water rescue leads, as well as being a land search manager. So it's become quite a large part of my life. And that background, I think, kind of helped me get the the role that I have within the fire service as well. So it's uh, all slots together quite nicely. And then we've got the the paddle boarding business on the side as well. So it's seeing the water from different angles, different aspects, different usages, and being able to combine that knowledge to share the love for water without wanting to scare people off, uh, but just wanting to see people enjoying themselves safely. What was your first experience of SAP? Can you remember the moment? Was it was it love at first sight? It was, yeah. We were on holiday. We were in Florida. Night, idyllic sort of location. Had seen it, people paddle boarding and thought, I'll give that a try. And jumped on and, yeah, loved it straight away. It was then a couple of years until we tried it in the UK, uh, but managed to convince Craig to do one of these site bu- uh, SUP bike run events. So that was our first UK experience, uh, so doing that. Uh, and then not long after that, we both kind of ended up buying boards and joining the local club. They wanted to diversify a little bit. Uh, so we were some of the first members to become involved with the club there. And that's one of the places where we teach as well. And Craig, what about you? So you've also had to manage water during the day job. And and what was the story about you discovering stand-up paddleboarding? Was that just James persuading you? Uh, Yes, it, it, it was, and I wish I could um, follow that with something impressive, but with my sort of water background, there probably wasn't any. I remember as a child uh, in a swimming pool and my mother trying to pull me away from the side to teach me to swim, and my knuckles were white hanging on because I thought there'd be something underneath the water whilst my younger brother's swimming around quite happily and fearless. And that continued into an adult, really. I learned to swim early on, uh, but then as an adult, when I was out on the water or in, in the sea, I'd be frightened as well. And it wasn't until I found stand-up paddleboard and that started to grow more of a love to water and, and 
the fearless part of being in the water. So, yeah, so James, uh, back in 2017, said, let's have a go at this sup bike run. It looks like a fun event because we did a bit of mountain biking and I did a bit of running. And I'd never tried stand-up paddleboarding. And we somehow managed to convince my wife to take part as well because she enjoys running. Um, not so much the mountain biking. And so we went to this sup bike event and and we had a pre-lesson uh, which is briefly here's a paddleboard here's here's the paddle you hold it this way this is how you do it put it in the water and move along and that was basically it and then the next day i think we were in a bit of security in a bubble in this little bay on the reservoir and we paddled out and as we got round out of that shelter, this this wind hit us. There were white horses <laughs> on the water, and I, I, I saw my wife on her knees, sort of digging down, looking at me. And I was thinking, "Is this the end of our marriage?" <laughs> and we had to paddle three. I think it was three kilometres, wasn't it, James? I think for that one, we did we did the smaller event. Uh, <laughs> And, and James headed off, and I thought, I better not head off. I'll stick right next to my wife, and I'll make sure that she gets around this as well. And, and we got round it, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it every minute of it, that, that challenge of, of getting around with the white horses on, with a chop going. So, yeah, <laughs> mine wasn't quite idyllic as Florida um, out on the water in the sunshine. Well, I'm working on a theory that a challenge in that initial session actually sets it up as something which has a bit of a learning curve because my first experience was rather similar to you headwind um, horizontal rain typical british summer i fell in about 30 times so i think maybe it's that challenge that sets things up but uh, clearly it was love at first sight for for both of you in very different situations so just talking about the journey and planning, where, when was it conceived? When did you, you decide <laughs> that you were going to go off and, and do this? I mean, yes. uh, just, just to set things up, and, I, and we haven't had a conversation about this yet. Traditionally, it's in a pub or over a beer. Is, is that – am I close? I, I'm putting it all on, on Jacko on this one. It was his bright idea, as I spent a lot of time reminding him about when we were struggling on Sunday. It was all his wonderful idea. Uh, I think we kind of 2020 lockdown we both felt when we weren't allowed to paddle weren't allowed to do anything we felt that something was missing Uh, we both take a lot from our time on the water I instantly feel that connection to water and when we didn't have it in 2020 we kind of felt something was missing so that kind of there was ideas brewing in the back of the mind from then but it was probably tail end of last year early part of this year we wanted to do something for charity wanted to do a bit of a trip a bit of a paddle and we found some dates where we had a bit of a window with work and the rest is history Craig might have a different recollection but that's how I remember it is yeah yeah so I think yeah it was along those lines I think paddling on the river seven a lot um coaching people how to paddle safely on the river seven i was fortunate enough to join cal major on on part of her journey along the river seven from source to sea and we talk a lot about in our sessions as well about plastic and how, it, how even though you're landlocked that plastic can float all the way out into the ocean and damage our oceans and i wanted to see that for myself and and know that what i'm talking about 
is true you know can if i drop a plastic bottle in shropshire up here is it really going to go out into the ocean you know and by us going on our paddle boards down that stretch um we really could see that happening a lot along the way so my water background within work i joined shropshire fire and rescue service 19 years ago now it only seems like yesterday i don't know where the time's gone and part of our initial training was um was our water rescue element so we had to get in jackfield rapids that i've spoken about previously and we had to get Jack, in there jackfield and- rapids what's it's Jackfield Rapids, yeah. Oh, so oh a that's a particular Rapids, right. It's a grade okay. two to three rapid in, in Shropshire, depending right. on its level. And it's where I do a, a lot of my whitewater paddle boarding now, just locally, mm-hmm. just 10 minutes down the road. But it's also where we train our crews for their swift water rescue. So um, as, a, as a newbie um, in the fire service, part of that initial training was that water rescue element. So we had to get in in our dry suits and learn how to rescue ourselves and, and swim across and learn about the flow and how it all works. Um, so then during my time as a firefighter, then I was part of rescues, rescuing people from water, whether it be from the land, supporting our boat crews that were operating from Shrewsbury. Um, seeing all, seeing the river go up and down in, in Shropshire here and, and anywhere along the Severn, you'll know that it, it floods we used to call it the 100 year flood we now call it the two, the two yearly flood um, because it is happening quite often which is frightening but through my career I've worked in at different levels now so I'm currently a station officer so my role has gone from being in the water and, and doing that rescue element to managing water incidents so I've got uh, what we call it a rescue three uh, mod five water incident management certificate so i'm trying to manage large scale flooding events and incident that's where we have multi-agency approaches so we've got the likes of seven area rescue mm-hmm. ambulance police whoever we call in we the recent floods we called in um, teams that are logged with defra and um and that, that they were a surf school so a surf school came up into shropshire and provided us with the skills that we needed to support our teams rescuing. So my involvement now is more of a management side, managing that holistic um, approach to the incident. And But a part of, part of that Mod 5, which I did enjoy because it had been some time, we had to get back in the water in our dry suits. On a cold January, it was snowing in Langothlan. We spent 12 hours in the water because we had to do a night swim as well. And if anyone's ever done a night swim uh, with a glow stick attached to you and a head torch and you're relying on your friends to throw you a line (laughs) before you uh, float off down the river in the dark, it is quite a a scary thing. But um, managing those instances is important that we know what our crews are going through, what their capabilities are and the effects that the water has on our crews but i must admit i thoroughly enjoyed getting back in the water and doing that doing that element um, and just recently i managed the large scale flooding in Ironbridge, which is local here and it affected a lot of properties um attracted a lot of, of media and it it really was an eye out now all these services come together for that multi-agency approach and i think that's where credit is due to the likes of sara seven area rescue they are charity led so a a lot of the funding will come through charity and this trip for us was about raising that awareness of the part that seven area rescue play as well in supporting uh, our 999 services Mm -hmm. well 
Yeah, and, and we'll talk a bit more about Sarah and also Seafull a little bit um, later on because you've done a, a great job raising money, which was obviously one of the objectives of the, the trip. So it sounds like then that this particular trip was quite long in the in the sort of generation. In terms of the actual logistics and putting it together and the structure of it, how long did that take to put all of that organisation together? I think uh, we... We've been so busy in, in, in work and running sessions with Sup Shropshire with our with our main roles in the fire service and, and James's seven area rescues that we, we I think we, we had one night where James came round to, to what we call babysitting me because my wife was going out and when I'm on call, uh, my son Edward, he, he can't be left with me because I could, could get called out at any minute. So James would come round whilst uh, my wife Emily was out with uh, James' wife Joe having a drink. And we I think we got a map out, discussed a little bit, but then sort of switched off. And we've sort of been doing bits each leading up to it. Uh, James did the planning of the campsites on the way down and the distances we were going to be traveling on on each day so it wasn't like i could say that we got together and we got all the maps out and we did all the planning together um it, it was sort of ad hoc how we put it together but it worked and and previous experience of the seven must have helped surely yeah, so the, the seven that runs through Shropshire, you got uh, just over a hundred kilometres of the shop uh, of the seven is in Shropshire itself. So we, we know that stretch uh, pretty well, and that is probably the one of the areas that you need to know well because of the weir, because of the faster flows that we've talked about, uh, and the hazards along the way. And it was just planning the further down bits as well, and how we're going to broach it. Brilliant. And the journey itself, it took four days. I think you had all all seasons, didn't you, on your way down there, which uh, created a few challenges. So I think all of your days were significant mileage. I think the shortest day was your final day, which was about 38 kilometres, but all the rest of them, it, it was um, some serious um, movement. Just just tell us how you eased into that and that first day on the water. So the, the first day happened to be the hottest day of the year. We got together at Craig's about half past seven in the morning, got all the kit together and got ourselves up to the launch site. So we were on the water for half past nine uh, and didn't really have any time constraint that day. There was a campsite at the end, so we knew where we were staying. We knew we had that point to get to. We know we know most of that section uh, between us. We've paddled that whole section, so we knew what we were going to come across. But it was very much a case of let's just ease into it. Uh, no point knackering ourselves on the first day, set a pace, just go with it. The temperature then decided to throw a complete spanner into the works. Uh, and that was, it was hot, it was hot, but it was uncomfortably hot. So we, we were struggling with the heat. So we were having to get into the water and cool down. We were smashing through our water a lot quicker than we expected. Uh, both of us were, thankfully, we were carrying plenty. Um, we knew we could refill in Shrewsbury. So that was 25, 30k in. So we knew we were okay on that front to kind of keep drinking to keep ourselves hydrated but the headwind started as well uh so our pace on the first day wasn't great but as i say there was nothing really that we had to be there for any set time uh the campsite we were using was turn up whenever you want so that really helped just take the pressure off and uh allowed us to kind of ease into the journey and just kind of make sure the the boards were trimmed right the kit was stored properly uh and we were kind of feeling it ourselves as well because as Craig says we hadn't 
put in a huge amount of distance pr- uh, prior to the journey. We didn't want to uh, cook ourselves on the first day completely. And that was uh, a very short 11 hours, well, 11 and a half hours on the boards. That that would have uh, been enough for anyone, I think, getting fit on the road there. So what I think was a great boost for us was that we were 50k in and we were meeting our drone operator just 7k away from our campsite. And like James says, I think it was about 30 degrees and we, we were absolutely cooked at this point, covered in suntan cream, covered in insect repellent. and and um, our drone operator met us on this little beach to um, to say well done and that. And he had a cooler bag with him with two very cold Coronas in there. And I must admit, I, I've never tasted beer that tasted so good. Not an advert for Corona. It was just a good to get that down us after 50 kilometers in 30 degree heat. I felt like just lying down on the beach then. <laughs> but then we pressed onto the campsite. Well, apparently there's some science behind this because I, back in my day, I did a, a bit of distance running and um, I saw an article in Runner's World. I think it must have been in 2006 or something like that. But anyway, I still remember it, citing uh, lager as a very good way of rehydrating um, after a race. So I've, uh, I, I should have uh, taken a photo or something and uh, got it framed. But anyway, I, I trot that one out as an excuse. But apparently it's got carbohydrates in it and uh, it's got some water in it. So, you know, f- for me, I mean, I'm no physiologist, but uh, makes sense, makes sense to me. It did. It did push us on for that that, that last seven k. So a big shout out to Richard Groom, the Shropshire Air Picks, for providing that for us because it really was a, a great treat. And and then you were into day two. So that was your highest mileage day, sixty three kilometers and uh, slightly more hours there. That was twelve hours. What, what was that like? That was the day it decided to chuck it down. We went from to, uh, really warm temperatures to the rain. Uh, we were on the water early as we were kind of awake anyway because it was, it was daylight, we got onto the water, cracked on. But we knew, we also had the wives meeting us uh, in Ironbridge, that 20k in. So we knew we had a time to be there for. And that was a bit of a, a boost that we needed just to help get us through and set us up for the day. Uh, we were also fortunate enough for the colleagues uh, came to join us with drones. We were able to meet them. The weather was on our side. So when we met up with the wives and when we met up with the drone team, it stopped raining. And then as soon as we left them, it started raining and we kind of just ground it out and made our way down to the campsite. It's a section that we paddle often. It's where we do the majority of the teaching through uh, substructure adventures. And there's nothing like a hard day on the water doing serious exercise and then uh, be greeted with the prospect of putting your tent up in a in a rainy fields and uh, getting into a potentially damp uh, sleeping bag. Uh, did you manage to get any sleep that night? Um, yeah, not really. No, no. But yeah, day two in the rain, um, going that that the, the heavens really did o- open up for us, and you know. A big credit to the to our supporters that came along. My wife Emily and my son Edward and James's wife Joe came down to meet us in the pouring rain. And some of the pictures that you can see on our Instagram post, you can see that it's absolutely chucking it down. And obviously, our wives are taking those photographs, standing in it themselves. But 
the temperature went from 30 degrees and I think it shot down to about 13 or 14 degrees. But I must admit, and I'm sure other paddlers agree, paddling in the rain just isn't a problem really. Uh, it's either wind or that really hot sun that can catch you out. But that that rain was a blessing. We got to the campsite, um, soaked through, and the weather gods helped us out with the drone footage as well over the Iron Bridge. So the drone operators needed no rain to get the drones up. Um, so again that was Richard and our friend Charlie and they got up over the Iron Bridge managed to get some quick shots there and then the heavens opened up again for our trip all the way down to our campsite Um, as we got off the water though um, we were sort of getting our kit up to the campsite and all of a sudden it stopped raining and we checked our weather apps and it said it was going to be heavy rain again within the hour so we quickly rushed and got all our tents up so a big tip i would say is that you know make sure you pack your bags so that you've got everything you know where it is you've got your camping gear ready to go straight away so that if you're in that situation you can whip out your tent get it set up get your sleeping bag in there and you can you've got that dry environment but also we carried a um a tarp with us so a three meter by three meter tarp and we were able to set that up over over a tree as well so we could sit under it and get a dry area to get our food on but yeah we had that weather window got our tents up and i think when we put the last peg in the the heavens opened again and we thought somebody's watching over us today (laughs) they must be feeling our pain after 62 kilometers and 12 hours on the water you're listening to the Sup FM podcast and my chat with Craig and James from Sup Shropshire. And we'll be right back. As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continue to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavours of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. And now for the second part of my chat with Craig and James from Sup Shropshire. Coming back to sort of stowing and organising your your kit, how did you um, structure that? Because obviously there isn't a huge amount of stowage room. You need to know where things are. What's your strategy for the kit that you're using and keeping it available for when you need it because in in those sorts of situations it's very easy to have a setup where you've got everything in all sorts of strange places and that doesn't help you in in that sort of situation where you need to get set up quickly yeah i think we were fortunate that we were supported by fourth element dive with and um, they provide us with these expedition series bags and um, they're for divers as well so there's a section in the middle where you can put fins in um, and then two really large dry bag areas so in my in my bag i had my tent sleeping bag and uh my fourth element poncho in one so that i could pull that out straight away and put that on and then get my tent ready in another pocket then i had a sort of a wet pocket so where i put all my wet stuff like my towels etc and then if the tent got wet that that would go in there away from my sleeping bag my food had all been another dry bag that we were provided so my food would be in there that i'd need for the evening 
in my main roll open bag on the board i'd make sure that i got the stuff that i needed through the day so i had another water bottle in my bag just in case also i had my lunch in that bag as well i thought about what am i going to need during the day um potentially in an emergency as well so looking at repair kits etc um it would be in that front bag and then anything else i needed on an evening such as the camping gear my, my food my gas stove it'd be in those bags on the back that would be out the way so that's how i sort of structured it but i'm not sure if james did it differently uh very similar to be honest that big fourth element bag yeah i just ate all the kits so yeah kept tent and everything in there uh a roll top bag where everything was accessible that I would need during the day. I had a second dry bag, had my dry clothes, my food, everything like that as well. So when we got on and off or off the water, we knew what we needed to grab in what order to get ourselves sorted. And we'd prepped our lunches and at breakfast, we had some clean canteen uh, pots that kept the food warm. So it meant that we weren't having to try and heat food for lunch. We could literally just sit on the boards in the middle of the river floating downstream literally stop for five ten minutes throw some two minute noodles down your neck and then uh, crack on and go again we also had bags of nuts and jelly babies and things in the pfds so things like that that were accessible so it's trying to keep kit that you want to use close to hand i know when i did a lot of mountain biking events i'd have flapjacks and energy bars and things like that with me but if it wasn't actually on my pocket and it meant i'd stop and get out my camel back i didn't eat it Whereas because of the PFDs, we were able to store all the stuff that was to hand that was nice and easy so that it meant we could keep our energy levels up because uh, we knew we were, we wanted to make it into a challenge and it certainly was a challenge. So we uh, we didn't want to kind of cause any issues by uh, running running out of fuel. Yeah, and, and it's that traditional setup, isn't it, where you've got everything to hand that you're going to need during the day. You've got everything you really don't want to have to get into, so all of your, your camping materials somewhere else, and then then that dry bag set up for all your wet kit just to make sure that your sleeping bag stays dry throughout because there's nothing uh, worse for morale than settling into a, a wet sleeping bag at the end of the day, I think. And uh, certainly after the case that, that you did an, a good night's sleep, if you can, you can get one. And and the tents that, that you were using. So just tell me a bit about that, because you can get some pretty small tents. I sort of treat tents very much like my barbecues in that I've got any number of them and still increasing. And um, my smallest tent created uh, great interest at the campsite where I put it up because, you know, it feels like it's small enough that when you sort of breathe out the outside of the, the tent moves with you. So <laughs> sort of one step below a bivy bag, I I think, which makes your, your three by three tarp very good because the last thing you want to do is spend the entire evening just sort of staring at canvas, which is about two inches from your nose just tell us about the setups you had in terms of, of your tents so my tent was a, a new one that to go and purchase because um i drive a camper van so a lot of our camping is in a van uh, we moved away from a tent a, a while back um and it had been some some time since i was camping so for me really it was about cost if i'm honest it was about keeping that cost low but at the same time finding something that's going to be small easy and fast to to put up so i was fortunate to find a tent uh, a small two-man tent and um, that was on offer um and then the first time i put it up was i think literally probably a week or two before the challenge uh we'd gone away camping with friends um 
So my wife was in the band. And I said, look, I'm going to put my little tent up and I'm going to go and sleep in that for night. Try out my new air mattress and, and my new tent. So that was that was the story about my tent. But like you say, there's not much room in it that that tarp was so beneficial for us on that rainy night because there's not, that we would have been sort of lining our tents alone trying to put food in our mouths. Uh, so, yeah, that was my tent. And, and James, I imagine you didn't have a, a full sort of marquee for you either. No, it was a, a, a birthday present from when I was 15, 16. So a bit retro, but it was, you know, it's mountain hardware. It is a, a lightweight tent that was, it weighs kilo and a half, two kilos. Uh, it's done me proud for many, many years. doesn't owe me anything, uh, but it was ideal. Uh enough storage space for bags could come in there with me if needed uh bought a new uh thermarest type uh mattress uh so that was kind of a new investment for this trip just to try and get myself off the floor a little bit more rather than using the you know the the traditional bits of foam Uh, and it was amazing the difference that that made so that was well worth it just spending that little bit of extra money because as you say there's nothing worse than having a rubbish night's sleep especially when you're doing kind of these multi-day trips uh we were staying at campsites and we were kind of lucky enough that uh on day two after the rain the campsite uh the people running it actually dry were able to dry our kit for us so it meant that we were then able to put dry kit on for the for the day three day four that kind of really made a big difference that was great for morale on uh the sunday morning that we were able to be wearing dry clothes rather than slightly warm damp clothes or cold damp clothes which would have been the worst case so yeah that was that that made a big big difference but having the separate tents and being able to just kind of stretch out and have a bit of bit of space bit of comfort and as as much sleep as we could just uh yeah made a difference and uh, so important that sleep in multi-day missions like yours and of course anyone who's been out on similar expeditions will have probably the same question that I have what was the pillow strategy because <laughs> you know I've tried various approaches the inflatable pillow that deflates during the night and you end up with a huge great line across your face or you use a bit of kit you use your dirty washing bag which isn't the most fragrant thing at the end of a day's worth of exercise what what were your approaches to that uh, key consideration there well, due to my test uh, that I had, I found that that air pillow was exactly like you say, not the most comfortable. But then I can't remember where I heard the tip from. I can't remember who it was, but somebody said about taking a pillowcase and then filling it with your clothes. So I packed a pillowcase and I did exactly that. The, the clothes that I had in one of my dry bags um, that I took for just extra layers, I, I pushed those and, and my dry towel into a pillowcase and that was that was really comfortable, to be honest. I still had my air pillow just to give me a bit of hot, bit more height, but then my top one was a pillowcase filled with clothes. There you go. Good, good tips. How about you, James? Uh, inflatable pillow, uh, but I wrapped it in my fourth element dry robe just to kind of give it a little bit more kind of comfort and um, volume. Uh, but also ended up using my bag of uh, dry clothes as well. Uh, so yeah, kind of a combination of all the above. Cause the, the first night, I kind of got myself nice and comfy and then managed to pull the plug out of said inflatable air pillow. So yeah, very quickly learned not to do that. It's certainly n- night one and two, sleep was all right. 
by night three, I was out like a light. I'd, I, I could have been sleeping on anything, and that was it. I was out for the count. Excellent. And there were two further days that you had good weather. Any any incidents or anything like that on the on those final two? Uh, so day three started off nice and sunny. It got a bit grey towards the end of the day, but this is the day the some of those Sarah crew, so from my station, from uh, Sarah Wire Forest, they came out and uh, joined us for a couple of k. Uh, so they turned up from on the rescue boats uh, and gave us a little bit of an escort downstream. Uh, so that was again really nice to see them and uh, gave us a, a good push on. It was also the day of all the locks. So there was five locks that we transited through that day, uh, which put a bit of time on. But it was interesting speaking to the lock keepers. The pace we were putting on was surprising them. Uh, so that was quite nice. Meant we were kind of getting a wriggle on. But we were able to communicate our plan to the first lock keeper. And he would then kind of bounce uh, our information down to the locks. So each lock knew to expect us. So it was kind of that additional safety factor. And uh, Again, if anybody's kind of doing a similar sort of trip, you know, speak to the lock keepers. They they can pass these messages on. If you don't turn off in a certain amount of time and they're expecting you, it just kind of potentially could raise the alarm that little bit quicker. Uh, yeah, those little breaks in the locks were well well needed. Uh, and then it was the, the, the long haul from Worcester down to just, just below Tewkesbury. It was uh, lots of long straights when the river completely changed, but it was uh, it was nice just seeing the different elements of the river. And and just managing those locks. So, on some of them you went down, some of you portaged, or, or uh, how did that work? So the first day, the lock in Shrewsbury, we portaged round because there are no lock gates because that's on the non-navigable section of the River Severn. Uh, the lock gates from Starport down is all part of the navigable section, so they're all manned lock gates. Uh, so we. Uh, drop down so the lock keepers were able to operate them for us uh, so we were talking to them uh, either on uh, marine vhf as we did on uh, the final day going into gloucester dock or just kind of they, they were keeping an eye out for us anyway uh, they've got cameras so they're able to kind of see who's coming in towards them uh, and the locks were all prepped for us as i say especially once we've spoken to the first guy the rest of them all knew we were coming and, and there was an important tip because I saw some of your social media posts as you came through, Craig. I think you you uh, gave a bit of an insight as to to um, how to sort of manage yourself and your location within those locks as you're sort of going down to the next level. Just just talk us through that approach. Yeah, so it's the first time I'd been into one of those locks, if I'm honest. And James has been into them before with a with a Sarka, and he, he just mentioned about the. Um, just mentioned about the ropes that we have to hang on to the steel ropes and they get quite slimy obviously where they're underneath the water so we carry slings in our pocket with um, a carabiner on so like i mentioned before it's important that you're not connecting yourself to anything because if you get into trouble you need to quickly release yourself from it so with that sling we'd, we'd like james mentioned we speak to the lock keeper and they'll normally say to you uh, can you go on the left hand side halfway down or can you go on the right hand side or it doesn't matter where you go in the lock so we'd go into a lock with our sling on it and we'd be on our knees and we'd just pull up to one of the these big steel ropes that stretch from the top of the lock right down to the bottom and feed the sling through probably about a, a foot of the sling and then just hold that in our hands so 
as the lock's filling or emptying, it's not going to move us around the lock and pull us away from that wall and, and create any hazards. So, but with that sling as it was, we could, if we got into any difficulty, could just l- release one, one end and it would freely flow out of that wire rope so that we're again safe and not tied to anything that could cause us any issues and you don't get your hands all slimy from the rope and how did you manage your electronics and so on because obviously there's sort of recharging and so on you know i know that there are power packs which may or may not have have kept you going but what arrangements did you make uh because of the job i do um, i tend to kind of work away quite a lot so as well as fire service stuff i, I do a lot of event work uh, so I kind of live with battery packs anyway. So I had a fleet of ba- battery packs and then I took them all with me uh, just in case I needed them because we were charging the Garmin watches and charging the phone every night. Uh, so I, I carry one on the board anyway in a dry bag so that if there is an emergency, I know that I can always get additional power into my phone. Uh, but yeah, just kind of upping the number of them. So I think we both had power packs with us so we weren't then reliant on anybody we could charge partway during the day if needed, etc. Because we were both using uh, paddle logger to track uh, our progress, uh, and again, just that safety aspect, so that our emergency contacts kind of know where we were. And uh, because we were doing long days, then yeah, the fact that we could charge partway through the day was just made a big difference. And physically, so you put a lot of a lot of miles through your arms and your legs and, and your body. Um, how and I know that you went through a lot of different conditions, which um, which would have put all, all sorts of uh, elements of your operation under stress. So, just tell us about how you came out of the, the four days at the end of it, because um, you know spending that amount of time on a paddleboard over four days must have had quite an impact on you. Yeah, I think, yeah, even going back to the to the first day and the first two hours, I don't know if it's a mental thing, but both James and I said to each other, are we overthinking it? We're thinking, oh, I can feel a little niggle in my back. I, I can feel my feet twinging, up, my ankles twinging, and that was literally in, in two hours. And you do think, oh, is my paddle technique right? Is my stance right? Am I using my core or am I using my arms too much? And it, it's all going through your mind because you know you've got that long day ahead. Uh, but then gradually over the days, then you really did, really did feel the the pain, and, and you knew that um, we should have put those we should have put those miles in beforehand. We might, might not have come away with the blisters that we have, and probably would have been better prepared for that. So, I'd definitely say if anyone's going to do something like this, then put the miles in beforehand. Know what kind of aches and pains you're going to get through. For me personally, it, it was um, within my back. Um, and you know we coach about paddle technique paddle strokes and um read a lot of books as well um i'm trying to think of the one you got steve steve's steve's Steve west book the guru. guru paddle boarding um you know and i practice those techniques all the time but when you're paddling 11 hours a day you sometimes you, you switch off from it and the pain so the pain i felt was in my shoulder blade the blisters started to come then um I could feel it in my ankles, um, in my Achilles. Then I could, then as we was going through sort of white water sections, I was starting to feel it in my knees because I knew I was bending more and getting lower and really driving myself through that white water. Uh, and on day two, when I'd got the blisters, I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll put a bit of tape over them, look after my hands before we get away. I'll put tape over them and I'll wear a glove. But then my hands sweated. The, the blisters were starting to get worse from that. So it was just back to, you know what, i got to grim and bear this now and, 
and power through it. Prep is definitely key. But now after coming off the water, um, my feet feel like, the soles of my feet feel like I've got nettle stings on them. They're tingling a little bit. Um, my blisters have calmed down and I can feel a little twinge in my back. So it's it's not too bad, but I've been sleeping sleeping well since i've been back i bet you have and it's funny isn't it the 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 base of the feet i mean it's always something that tends to happen regardless of the amount of miles that you, that you put down particularly sort of new paddlers um tend to report it that sort of crampy type feeling and it really shows how much stand-up paddle boarding's a head-to-toe type exercise because you know all of that power is essentially being passed on through your feet so you know it's really important to keep your feet nice and uh, nice and moving and, and supple and so on but yeah that's a, a hell of a distance yeah, so there's a great little video that James shared, I think, of my uh, wiggle wiggle dance. And I think uh, the pain was getting to my feet. And I will share it again on social media at some point. It might appear in a reel or something. But uh, <laughs> I just started doing this little dance with lifting my feet and, and wriggling around and twisting <laughs> on the board. And it turned into a little dance and song. And James thought that I'd uh, completely lost the plot then because I'd, I'd pulled a plastic bottle out the river that was floating down on its way to the sea. And I, and I think it was that moment where I was going to draw a face on it and call it wilson and, and start talking to the ball <laughs> so tell me about the wildlife you, you came across there craig when you were descending oh the, the wildlife along the river seven is, is absolutely beautiful from from top to bottom actually and and it it started off on the welsh border with red kites flying overhead buzzards a lot of herons kingfishers are oh, kingfishers my favorite bird just like a blue dart going through um just nipping out from a tree and shooting across the water um the cuckoos as well but the most strange the, the strangest uh, wildlife encounter i had was that on our second night we camped um just in Stourport. So around 4am I awoke, as I did more or less every hour that night, uh, needed a comfort break. So I nipped outside my tent into nature and I heard this really strange sort of, it sounded like an engine just slowly revving and, and revving and revving, but it changed every so often. I thought maybe it is one of the pumps because you get a lot of pumps along the river where the farmers are, are sucking out the mm. water. And it dawned on me that actually what I was listening to were lions <laughs> roaring to each other. Now, wow. yes, we were into Hereford and Worcestershire then. And if you know the area, you'll know that the, the West Midlands Safari Park is mm. not far away. And through the valley there, you, I just heard this eerie roaring noise on and off, on and off. Something you wouldn't expect. Any swan encounters? Well, yes, there, there, there were swans. We were floating down at one point and I had a quick FaceTime uh, with my wife and son because it was Father's Day. And there was a swan um, chasing me behind and, and they'll take up this defensive mode with the wings up of the head tucked back in the body. And they start sort of lunging forwards gradually. You start lunging, lunging. I had to lift the phone up and say, watch this swan here. And it, coming through Worcester, they, I think they call it swan steps. Um, they were just hundreds of swans but because they're used to people there they, they were mm. all fine but it's mm. all about that animal behavior and looking at it and, and reading that animal behavior mm. giving yeah. them plenty of space with all wildlife give it plenty of space and and let them be so in terms of the 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 journey and and so on obviously you come from a background where you've got a lot of understanding about water and how it works you've got um decent experience in terms of distance 
what would you have changed sort of looking back in terms of your organization and your setup? Is there any any sort of ref- lessons that you can reflect on if you were going to do it again? <laughs> so it's kind of thinking potentially more about additional kit that we thought we could potentially use. So uh, bin bags, things like that, just multi-purpose. So there's additional kit that we were thinking of for the next time. Uh, the the storage on the board was certainly something I, I need to look at and whether that involves kind of adding additional storage points onto my board. Uh, so yeah, something kind of be looking at. Uh, the the handle system that Craig has on his board. So there's big handles front and rear, uh, and that make a, made a big, big difference getting the boards in and out at various portage sec- sections. Look at adding something like that onto my board. Uh, and you can always say, yes, it'd be nice to have more time on the board and more paddle practice. But I think, you know, we, we paddle a lot anyway. Yes, we maybe didn't put the distance in, but it's not like we've kind of gone from doing nothing to putting these distances in. Uh, there's only so much, I guess, you can kind of train for. Uh, but yeah, I think because of our backgrounds, we both had a lot of the kit and, you know, we took everything we need. There wasn't anything we went, oh, we're missing that completely. But it was just kind of a couple of little nice uh, nice to haves, maybe, were a couple of things. Yeah, I think Joe's hitting that on the head there about, yes, we can talk about putting the distance in, but the key part was a safety element in that. We are experienced paddleboarders. We know we know the river. We we operate on it a lot in in different scenarios. And if you're looking at doing this, is make sure you have that training beforehand, and you understand the river, you understand the dangers, uh, so that you can that you can paddle on it on it safely. So, is there any advice that you would give people who wanted to do some or all of what you've done? What advice would you give um, first-time explorers if they wanted to to paddle the seven? It'd be put put the time and put a bit of research in. So we hadn't paddled the full section, but we kind of knew most of most of the sections. Uh, whether that's through paddling, I've spent time on it on the the rescue boats as well. So we kind of knew where we were getting into, where all the big issues were. Uh, in January, February, I think it was, we kind of did a trip where it meant that we were going over the weir or around the weir in Shrewsbury because we wanted to kind of assess what the portage uh, options were on that. And um, we were doing that with lighter boards. So again, it was just kind of putting a bit of planning, a bit of prior thought into it. Uh, as we made our way further down the river, you start becoming uh, more navigable. So you get then have to deal with bigger boats. So we were both carrying BHF with us. So we were able to kind of communicate with them, listen to them, speak to the docks. Uh, but it's, I think, kind of t- speak to people, whether that's kind of other paddlers, other folk that use the river, put the t- put the time in and, uh, and the research prior to your trip, looking at the weather, looking at conditions and everything like that. And it just makes your life so much easier when you're there rather than going into it completely blindfolded and having to kind of... A, assess on on the hoof you kind of know what you're expecting and as a result you're going to enjoy it a little bit more and of course the difficult thing is managing the weather and you came across some uncomfortable paddling conditions but they weren't likely to lead to abandonment of the trip but in terms of sort of managing a, a go no go um, situation in terms of the expedition I think it's really important that uh, people aren't necessarily wedded to to dates and, and head off in situations where things are slightly perilous or if there's a big 
it's all of water upstream. And I think that that relates to to all paddleboard missions, particularly in the UK, where we we have to be led by conditions, by weather, and just be quite pragmatic and uh, not put ourselves into situations where we might regret and uh, to make sure that we can paddle another day. Well, that's it. I kind of have oh, so, sorry, it's that have that ABC plan, uh, but I'm sure Craig will kind of talk about it. We kind of that day that day four decision we had. Uh, it was you know quite a heuristic trap and uh, we spent a lot of time talking about it and uh, yeah like kind of Craig go through what our processes were. Yeah so we we did have to make one of those decisions because we'd we'd paddled some really really big days and we had a decision to make um, that morning at at Gloucester whether we carried on down the seven into the seven estuary or we took the Gloucestershire and Sharpness canal um, which would be the safer route so uh, we always said that we'd decide on the day we wouldn't say that yes we're going down it because that would be the wrong thing to do because we can't say what the weather's going to be we you, you can see what the tides can be um, but we didn't know what the weather would be but more important as well we didn't know what our, the state of our health would be as well after the, those days and our physical ability to do it and we've all been there where we'll we'll keep going in for that last last try, last try. And I've done it myself, snowboarding, doing three sixty backside three sixties off a off a jump, and then thinking I'll I'll land it perfectly this time. And I ended up separating my shoulder. So I've I've learned from that one. And as James says, you know these heuristic <laughs> tra- traps where we think, yeah, the weather's great, you know, the wind's good. We we're gonna do. It. I've done this a million times. One, we hadn't done the seven estuary a million times. It was a small tide. It was only, say, only a seven meter. That's still a decent tide, but it's not what it's normally at when we look at springs and etc. We we said that we'd make that decision when we got to Gloucester. So we got to Gloucester and we had the opportunity then of, I think, 25 plus kilometer paddle from there or a 40 plus paddled down the seven estuary. We had a look at uh, the wind. We'd, we'd experienced some gusts as we were coming down uh, the seven and they were on our back so we thought well that could be all right but then when the time we got uh, down to Gloucester um, we were hitting the incoming tide so the tide was just started to turn and be incoming so what we knew we'd experienced then is a wind over tide effect and we knew that we'd hit some chop also the the river sort of doubles back on itself a little bit so we knew that then that had turned into a fairly strong headwind and with our blisters and and how we were feeling and we'd already experienced a 57 kilometer 62 kilometer day a 59 kilometer day and we knew that a 50 kilometer day on an estuary that is well known around the world uh, with a wind over tide and then a tide changing us and us going out on that outgoing tide um, knowing knowing from sharpness as well with James's experience there and and um, seeing the mud and, and the mud flats sort of there uh, it, it really is a long way to walk in mud if we if we're in that position and what we didn't want to do is we're raising money for seven area rescue and have to call them out and rescue us so at that point we made the decision to uh, continue our journey down the Gloucestershire and Sharpness Canal and I must admit it's not like the canals around here the Shropshire canals are nice but this is a really nice big wide um, canal Um, it still took us um, nine and a half hours that last day so it was still a long day and when we got to Sharpness we looked out onto the estuary and we both 
sort of nodded at each other in sort of acceptance that we'd we'd made the right decision that day. Incredible. Well, what a, what a journey! Seventy two thousand paddle strokes in all, quite an achievement. And uh, and you got across the finishing line, obviously raising money for the the two charities that you're raising money for. Um, before I sort of talk a bit about the charities and the fundraising, what, what are the plans for the future? Because clearly now you've both recovered, um, you're looking at the next challenge. <laughs> on uh, I think it was on day one, I turned to James and I said, what are we doing next, James? And he said, let's just get through this. <laughs> and I, every day I said to James, I said, it's all downhill from here, because obviously water, water flows downhill and that's why we'd push on. But um, next thing, so we, 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 we've spoken about the, the Caledonian Canal is a well-known one and it's a beautiful place to paddle. Uh, we've also discussed one that I think Sean Sykes did, which was paddle uh, the circumference of Wales along the river canal systems and the ocean. Um but we're looking at different things and is there something new that anybody hasn't done yet? It's um, probably hard to say. In day two of this one, I did turn to James and I said, are we breaking any records here? Because we're doing 11, 12-hour days covering a lot of distance in a lot of pain. And I'm sure the people I've seen do this have done it over a longer period and enjoyed every minute of it. So, yeah, we're thinking we're getting our heads, heads together sort of what will be next and uh, you know the support that we had along this trip has been absolutely amazing our wives emily and joe and my son edward came out in a pouring rain to cheer us on um uh, richard groom and charlie cartwright came out to get drone footage of us uh duncan and denise came down to the riverside again in the pouring rain to cheer us on and and i thought that was the end of the support for that day and then we saw another lady called nikki walking along the bank in the pouring rain and i really felt for her up there but she was waving and and uh and cheering us on um and then the sarah crews that came out to meet us in the boat you know that that was great as well they did offer to tow us but we said no we, we're doing this uh properly we're not being towed <laughs> anywhere the, the crew down at sharpness as well coming there's nothing worse i think than coming to a finish line and and just being there alone yes you know james and i were together and we'd spent four days um together but seeing those sharpness crews at the end sort of clapping us and and walking mm. along with us until we got to the uh to the lifeboat station was um, just amazing. And then we reached out before as well to certain companies as well to see if we could get any support with kit. And uh, Fourth Element have been absolutely brilliant for us. They provided us with some amazing kit. Clean Canteen provided us with um, our hot canisters, and James mentioned earlier, we were able to heat our day food up during our breakfast so then we could have that moving lunch and made sure that we hit those targets um, and the board that I was riding as well. The McConks family um, gifted us a 12-8 Explore board for me to do the trip on with the intention for me to auction that at the end so that money goes, all that money goes into the charity. And that, that board, and I'm not just saying it because it was gifted, but I'm going to have to buy my own now or I'll, or I'll be bidding against people that will be bidding for it. But their support all the way along, they were messaging us, but the support from everyone. The mentions on, on social media um, from likes of Kaz Dawson, Joe Mosley, Cal Major, 
all our friends and family, people that we've never met as well, just pushing us along yourself, Simon, the, the messages really did push us on. Morale's so important just to keep you sort of pushing along and sometimes it can arrive at unexpected moments to, to push you. But just very briefly, just talk about the, the charities that you're raising money for. So Sarah and, and Seafull, just tell us a bit about the Seafull charity. What sort of work do they do? Yeah, so Cal Major, like I mentioned before, was paddling the seven source to sea and, and I joined her for a section of that. And whilst whilst we were paddling, uh, she ta- started to talk about a charity that she was looking at setting up then and it was back in 2020. And she was talking about this charity and, and she's, she's an amazing lady, as you know, and, and her enthusiasm for the environment and protecting our oceans just, just spills out. It's like the butterfly effect, really. So her thought behind seafall was uh, it was about finding that connection to our blue spaces finding that connection to the oceans and jacques Cousteau says that uh we'll protect what we love but we can only love what we know so cal's intention behind it is let's connect people because only one in five children have ever been to the seaside mm. and through seafall we get children and adults as well um, from inner cities or, or by the coast because the children that live at the coast that have never been to the seaside as well is to finding that connection with our blue spaces so that you find that mindfulness with it and it's all naturally done it's not preached about it's all in the natural environment whether it's through paddleboarding whether it's through a bit of scuba diving a bit of rock pooling and it's getting people in that environment to find that connection just naturally organically through sessions that we run and they they want to protect it then, and that's that's the idea um, behind Seafall. So um, I was watching a WSA uh, um, session, webinar, during lockdown, and Cal was on it, and she mentioned about a charity. Again, I mentioned about um, uh, clubs around the country looking to support it and how they could support it. So I thought, you know what, maybe we can here in Shropshire at Chalmarsh Sailing Club where James and I volunteer as sub-coaches because we're very much about connecting people to the water and finding that mindfulness with it uh, and about protecting our environment. So I got in touch with Cal, um, just dropped her a message and said, I think we can support with this at, at, at Chalmarsh. And she said, that's brilliant. We're still growing the charity. So we started to become quite heavily involved then in, in helping um, with how sessions had run. Um, our, what James and I, our wives, work in the same school. They're both teachers, and they're working in inner city school. And a lot of the children there, the, the demographic, that some of them have never seen a cow in the countryside, never been to um, a water environment or been t- to the coast. So. At Chalmers Sailing Club, it's like being at the coast. We've got seagulls, we've got cormorants, we've got kingfishers flying up and down. It's, if I can describe it, it's, 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 it's an oasis nestled in the middle of the Shropshire countryside away from any roads, and you might hear the toot of a steam train going past in the distance. We built these sessions um, so that we could host 30 children at a time. We split it into three sections. I was able to bring in a good friend, Matt Loftus, who's a mental health coach. Um, and we split the sessions. So we'll have a paddleboarding session with a group of children and we'll take them out onto the water, get them having fun, and then we get them to sit down 
and and there's some mindfulness some mindful mm-hmm. moments where we'll relax and i'll put the hands in the water and i'll get them to close their eyes and just listen and it, and it is literally just the gulls and different types of bird or the water slapping against the board and we start to talk about how it's making them feel and, and straight away it's relaxed and some of the first sessions we had are, are really at to to hold back the tears and when I when I FaceTime Cal and Lorna afterwards we, we were all in tears talking about it because you saw that connection um you 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 saw it happen I remember this this uh this young boy that were on the paddleboard he was frightened to go into the water absolutely petrified never been into water before didn't understand what his PFD would do um and I managed to coach him into the water and his, his knuckles were white gripping onto the board. And I was able to talk talk to him and, and let him he release the board and his face just lit up. And mm. I knew, I'm losing it again now, I knew in that moment he'd got that connection. And that, and that is what Seafall is about. So hopefully <clears throat> when he's older and as he's growing up, He's found that love for the water. He's going to look at protecting it. He's going to look at protecting that environment. And then the, the other sessions that we run on the side again, like with Matt Lofters, is a mental well-being session. So he runs a session where he's got a barrel filled with um, with what he calls a pollutant. Um, and the kids have got an exercise working as a team to get this barrel out of the, the middle. And the barrel normally falls over and inside it is plastic bags. So then we start to talk about plastic and the environment and the water and the rivers. And because of these children aren't near the ocean, they're not going to find that connection or how that dropping litter finds its way into the ocean. So then the Chelmosh Reservoir is an ideal place because the reservoir is fed from the River Severn and then feeds these children's houses with their drinking water. So we educate them that if you drop plastic, litter, whatever it may be, or pollute our water systems, the water that's being pumped out of the seven is is, is their drinking water that's yeah. going in. So it really is about that. And I think Cal and Lorna have done an excellent job. They've done some work up in Scotland with children, rock pooling and finding that connection. So the money that we've raised goes to funding these sessions to create that stewardship in, in looking after our oceans and our oceans provide over 50% of our oxygen. And if we don't look after our rivers, which is our passion in Shropshire, then we won't be looking after our oceans. So Sub Shropshire Adventure Guiding is about connecting people to our rivers, promoting safer paddleboarding, seeing how our rivers can be polluted and also finding mental well-being from our blue spaces. And, and James, Sara, obviously a charity that you, you're very familiar with and you've been working for. How important is Sara in terms of providing a response on the River Seven? It's massive. Uh, so we, we've got three declared uh, inla- inshore lifeboats. So they are deployed by the Coast Guard. So our Beachley, our Newport and our Sharpness Station respond as many people expect the RNLI to do. It is exactly the same, the kind of task by the Coast Guard to vessels, people in distress in the water, in the mud, in the River Severn, then working the way upstream. You're looking more at the, the inland water rescues, especially in and around flood seasons. We spend a lot of time in that sort of flood water. But we're also affiliated with Mountain Rescue. So it's the land search uh, services we provide to Gloucester Police, West Midlands Police, West Marcia Police, 
and say we're, we're able to assist kind of fire services, the ambulance service. So we are all volunteers, but it's kind of giving up our time. Uh, and we're a charity. Uh, so all funding is from donations and things like that. So the it's a charity that I obviously feel quite strongly about because of my involvement with them. Uh, so when we said that we were going to do this and do it for charity, I was very keen to have Sarah as one of those organisations uh, because of the service they provide. It's uh, quite often can be a bit of closure for families that are affected by uh, situations. Uh, it's quite often it's the reassurance as well during the flood events. We're kind of there just might not be evacuating people at the houses, but we might be the first people that they've seen in a couple of days. So it's a very, very necessary service, especially given the last couple of years we've had. Uh, it's a service that potentially could be needed uh, a little bit more often uh, based on people's um, mental health traumas and troubles as a result of the situations we find ourselves in at the moment. And these sort of events don't seem to be getting further spread. They tend to be more concentrated. Guys, thank you for your time. Congratulations on completing what was an epic journey. So thank you to you both for, for all of the, of the work that you've done, both in raising money for the charity and also the day job, which also helps to keep uh, people safe. So take care and see you on the water. Thank you.